are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, open debate, and great conversation in the new world order under Joe Biden. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So we made it to a Friday ride. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Lee. I can't complain. How about yourself? I'm fine. You know, I, I, it's a big weekend for me. Because tomorrow is my birthday. I guess it's a big yeah. I, yeah, I knew that. I told I told our I told our guests. I, I guess it's a big day. I made it to another one. So, you know, 57. 57 seems very old to me. Feel free to disagree, Rod. <laughs> no, I disagree with that. I say like uh, closer to 80. That's that's old. Okay, but but not this weekend. So we got a great show you put together for us today. Two good friends of mine. I love them as guests on the show, and I love them as people. Political activist, commentator, and deadhead Tyler Nixon will be with us, right, Rod? That's correct. As well as the legendary Gateway pundit Jim Hoff, one of the most popular publishers in all of right-wing and independent media, right? Correct about that as well. Now, in the second hour, we have a great interview that I already taped with Jared Kopas about Christina Freeland. Now, this is really a good interview. Anyone who wants to learn whether Christina Freeland is really a Nazi, you'll find out that she herself has written stuff in a book that's anti-Semitic, and it goes along with her philosophy. And her grandfather, we find out about him, and she's a liar and everything, and I think there's some room here. People who like doing research, listen to this interview. There's a lot of material you'll be able to take and research on your own, and maybe get an article published. Who knows? That's in the second hour. And we're also taking your calls, 202-521-1320, on Backstory. So, Rod, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Let me get the bad news out of the way. There's been somewhat of a setback in Ukraine. You've heard that, right? Yeah, it's been all over the the establishment media. Yeah. Now, it's not as—it's not— a long-term setback. And I have a feeling, well, let's talk about what's happening. The Russian counteroffensive in Kherson has ended, right? So we talked about that, and that's the one they were building up. But meanwhile, they launched another counteroffensive uh, near—see, I always get those names wrong. But— uh, Is it Karakov? Yes, that that's right. Thanks. And uh, that counteroffensive by the Ukrainians was really is an unusual success. They're big losers at doing things, but they've retaken about 30 kilometers of ground. They went in quick, but I think it would be short-lived. I do not think it will last long. But meanwhile— them getting any kind of victory at all when Blinken is over there, I think will 
empower Blinken to say, let's throw more money at them. Do you think so, Rod? Oh, yeah. You know, I saw multiple, multiple uh, establishment journalists, uh, you know, almost cheering it on like uh, cheerleaders, like, oh, my God, you know, it was a, a success for Ukraine. But, you know, they've been telling us for months since February that they're succeeding, they're succeeding, they're advancing, they're fighting back. So, you know, you know, a broken clock's uh, right twice a day. So, you know, I guess they get one. Now, I will say, because some, some of the pressure is coming from Russians who want to see Russia be more aggressive in Ukraine. I suspect it's possible. I'm, I don't know anything, obviously. But what do you think? I think Putin and the Russian military may punch back very hard on this because they have to show they're responding to it. And they may go full bore. And they haven't really done that in many places in Ukraine. Do you think Putin will hit back hard? That's an interesting question, Lee. Um, you know, I think so. I, I would believe so. I think he, I think this is getting a little tiring. And uh, obviously, I've said since the beginning, uh, they've been very precise and tactical. And then I saw last night that uh, some people in the Duma want to— uh, I, um, I don't know what the— uh, I, the term is for in Russia. I don't think it's impeachment, but they want to oust uh, Putin over the over starting this war. So I think he's facing a lot of pressure. Right. Yes, I think so too. And so that's why I suspect we we could see an escalation on Russia's side. So let's see what happens. Just keep an eye on that, everyone. I don't think it's going to have any long term effect. These towns that were. Villages, really, that were taken will probably be easily retaken soon. But let's see if this starts a new era for Russia in the war. So, I, and again, I don't know, but I have a suspicion. So, 202-521-1320, Owl Killer, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? So, your uh, old boss. Steve Bannon was on uh, Alex Jones today uh, talking about his uh, really recent yeah his recent indictment in um, New York City and you know he I don't know if he's looking for fame or if he really if he's really the man that he's saying he is you know quoting John Paul Jones I've only begun to fight but you know it it sounds good for the TV and you know he even combed his hair back when he. uh, when he showed up uh, in court, you noticed that he wasn't in handcuffs. And I wanted to get, I wanted to get your opinion. Is Steve Bannon deep state? And is this an act on his part? Or is he really what he says he is? Because if he is, he, he has a lot of guts to be, uh, you know, putting his finger in the system's face the way that he is. And then I wanted to comment on, on uh, Mr. King Charles after I get your opinion on uh, Steve Bannon. The idea that Steve Bannon's deep state is crazy. Clear enough? That's crazy. That's insane thinking. That's not the way the world works. It's really not. And and don't go down that rabbit hole, because next thing, it's me. It's insane. That's insane. Okay? Why is he, why is he the only one that doesn't get the special treatment that everybody else got? He doesn't door kicked in. He doesn't get the, the leg irons. Is it because he has, I mean, crap. I don't know, but he, he, Steve Bannon got normal treatment. Everybody else 
that we can name five or so examples. They got special treatment. They got weird treatment. But Steve got normal treatment. Steve got what people normally get. Why do they give him normal treatment? Possibly because a lot of people are watching to see how they deal with people. But Steve's not the anomaly. Other people are. An anomaly is one. It's not. It's not Fox. It's not Navarro. It's not. Uh, it's not Roger Stone. It's. It's. It's not. Uh, Over what time period? Over what time period? Navarro was just a couple months ago. What about and then uh, Trump's lawyer too? Okay, so so ones that are questionable happened. I would say three times in a couple months. Roger Stone was a long time ago. So anomalies can happen three times in a couple months. Well, that, and I think that either way, I he, think that interview was really good. He he gave he gave a really good interview and uh, basically saying how he doesn't expect this to be a short term. You know, he the people that thought 2016 Trump was going to get elected and this was going to be over are you know they're they're mistaken. He he sees this as like he's referring to the four turning. This is a 10 or 20 year uh, political battle in, in this country, and people are just going to have to have the stomach for it. And I don't, I don't know if cause the the real the real way to handle this to me, I think, is a if Republicans get in and they just start doing the exact same thing, I I think that's what Democrats want. So because that will energize their base that they feel like they're under persecution. I think the real answer to it is uh, coming together of the country and moving forward. Th- these are our, our ideals, and this is because. As fractured as we are, you can't just keep doing this one step forward, two steps back, because that, that is the one issue that we have in this country is that the right and the left do not have anything in common with each other. And that is a long-term issue I, I see going on, is that it, it, you, you can't be playing this compromising game, because if, if you compromise on stuff like a Green New Deal, either go with no, it— so, so, so let me slow you down. I disagree with that statement. It depends how you define right and left. Certain parts of the right and the left have very little in common, but certain parts of them have a lot in common. And I will point to the number of left-wing media personalities that appear on Tucker Carlson. We saw Jackson Hinkle recently, Glenn Greenwald, uh, even, you might argue, someone like Tulsi Gabbard. There's plenty of people who actually share values. Does that make sense? They share. I I, I wouldn't. I can't put Tulsi Gabbard on the real left today because she's she's just how Trump was in a sense, where Trump was a Democrat for twenty or thirty years, and the, the Democrat Party itself has moved so far left that he couldn't fit in anymore. And she obviously because of her. Um, stance on foreign policy, she can't fit in. You know, she's even she even has issues with um, the uh, transgenderism and you know pushing the surgeries on children. So even somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, who was you know five ten years ago was uh, she was well, pl- plenty of people on the left do. And what I've noticed is people like Ted Rawl, who's a commie, he's a he's a communist. He doesn't go for the woke stuff. George Galloway, you can't get more left than George. He doesn't go for identity politics. And actually, from a Marxist perspective, identity politics contradicts Marx. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, the people who need to change is the people on the right wing. 
it's it's not people like Greenwald and uh, other people have moved more to the right. But now people on the right need to realize their problem is not communism. Their problem is fascism. And I think they that that would mean because I'll put it like this. Antifa stands for anti-fascist. And they obviously hate what they call Nazis. And I believe many of them actually hate Nazis. And so, but meanwhile, people like McConnell and people like Kennedy, Republican senators are out there supporting fascists. And the Trump administration supported the fascists in Ukraine. When did Trump speak out against the uh, Poroshenko regime and right sector and all of that. You see what I'm saying, Al Keller? Yeah, no, and he just, you know, instead of, he wanted, again, he just had to prove that he was tougher than Obama was. And I sent them, uh, I sent them missiles instead of blankets. You know, how many times did he uh, say that repeatedly? Um, no, I, I do, I agree with that, but I, as far as the idea of oh we're going to cut spending or we're going to we're going to keep spending oh no we're going to come to a, a, a middle a middle ground there is no middle ground either you with situations like this it's the same thing where we're going to we're going to go with half a green deal or 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 we're going to go complete you know we're going to go complete oil there's no there's no middle ground on on those issues there either you go the problem is the, the the Republicans are used to being an opposition party, and the Republicans are very bad at providing solutions. So let me ask you, you've listened to Republicans. There were problems in health care, and there still are. No one should go bankrupt because their three-year-old gets cancer or something, right? I mean, a, a general agreement, I I, I think that— we don't want a system where people can't pay their bills, and some of these medical bills are outrageous. But Republicans have been good at opposing Obamacare, but they've not been good at suggesting any freaking solution for the problems. I'll, I'll put it like this. They say all the time—look, the problem I have with the Green New Deal is the solutions that the Democrats have had for environmental problems— have been bad and unrealistic and frankly unscientific but there are environmental problems that's real and republicans don't ever say what they would do to solve any of them and even what trump said you know you know i've been debating people on twitter in the past couple of days trump was completely wrong a lot of trump people up there saying he was right about germany and oil and i'm going to Give an analogy. So Trump said Germany's overdependent on Russian energy. Well, that's first off, mind your own business, Trump. Don't get in the middle of Germany and Russia. If and he was not right, there's no way they were overly dependent. It's nonsensical. If you live across the street from two gas stations, okay, let's put it in real simple terms. There's two gas stations, and one of them charges twice as much. 
So you go to the cheaper one because it's the same gas and you buy almost all your gas there. Are you overly dependent on that gas station? No, it's mutual. It's a mutual beneficial relationship. That's exactly right. Then if later you decide to boycott the cheaper gas station because you don't like the guy's politics, maybe the owner's a Democrat, you say, I'm not buying from him. So you boycott him. At that point, who's created the problem? Who created that problem? You did, right? Because you chose to boycott. He would still sell to you. And then, and this is, I think, I, you, you know it's all killer. This is what Germany did with Russia. Germany and the U.S., Trump sanctioned people all over the place. And the, the way he's made people stupid on this issue, when I thought of this gas station analogy, I think it's a good one. Do you see any problems with what I'm saying there, Algo? No, not at all. But I remember I'm, I brought that up with uh, Jason on your show that they champion. And the reason that the parrots are doing that on Twitter is because they're the people that they listen to are, are saying Trump was right on it. And they tell Trump he's right on it. So he, he sticks with that. That, that they, that he's so easy to, for somebody that really, he, for somebody that really does have a grasp on a lot of things, He's very naive in certain areas, and he just, as soon as, if you flatter him, he will, you know, he'll he'll take the side that you flattered him on because he likes the praise. And right now, he's liking the praise that he's getting, like he's a fortune teller, that uh, Germany was dependent on uh, Russia. You know something? Jared Kushner was giving an interview to Michael Savage, and one thing he said was, Trump and Putin were having a conversation. Like he said that Trump and Putin got along very well. And Trump said to um, Putin, hey, you know, are you worried about China? You know, they got a big population and, you know, they may want to expand. And Putin said to him, well, you're the one who's building a, a wall on your southern border. And Trump just was like, gave him the face like, yeah, good point. So, you know, he does try to do that where he tries to you know, he wants to be the show in town. He, you know, that that's basically what you're saying. It's like he wanted he wanted Germany to be purchasing oil from the United States, and and it it just goes to I I don't I don't like Jared Kushner, but that was that was a pretty insightful um, the picture that he painted in, into how uh, Donald Trump operates. And he really understands how Trump operates, and that's why he's able to manipulate him so well. So so. But great call, Alcala. I gotta move on. But thanks for the call. Great call. We'll talk to you next week, buddy. Thanks to our great caller, Al Keller. Now, Rod, do you agree that Republicans are bad at providing solutions for problems? They're terrible at it, Lee. They're terrible. Um, like you said, um, you know, I wasn't too very interested in politics uh, when I was younger. Um, you know, uh, in 2004, we had a Republican named uh, Sam Katz. White man was running against John Street in Philadelphia, and he was going to win. Um, uh, he was going to win. I'm pretty sure he did win, but the Democrats did what they always do, and they started calling him a racist and all this other stuff. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have 
a reply to that. They didn't have a response to that. They didn't know what to do. And here we are almost 20 years later on the national level, and they still don't have a response for, uh, you know, just being called racist and uh, white nationalists or white supremacists. They don't they don't have any solution to get across to the common people, common person. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. And uh, political change takes a long time. Speaking of taking a long time, let me talk briefly about the queen. We didn't really talk about that yesterday. Al Killer uh, called in with some comments. And I saw Russell Brand, the comedian and political commentator. Russell Brand had a great video about the Queen. I thought it was, I think Russell Brand's one of the best people out there. He's very balanced and he's funny. He's entertaining, but he also is very empathetic with both all sides. And he points out, and we don't really have the equivalent of the queen. Again, I'm not big on monarchy, but who do we have in our public life in America who's been in the same role in terms of people's brains? Just think about this. If you lived in England, unless you're 80 or something, the queen has always been a part of your life. From Elvis to Beatles to Spice Girls to now, right? She's always been there in the back of your mind. Do we have anyone in America who's like that? Not that I can think of, Lee, off the off the top of my head. I really can't think of anybody like that. No, right. And I really couldn't think of anybody like that either. And he pointed out she's not just a human being, but she's a symbol. And for England she's a symbol of something and that symbol is, and one of the things that represents to a lot of people in England for better or worse is in with all the crazy changes it's been a source of stability for people in England does that make sense it's been something there that you can count on yeah i've been hearing god save the queen as long as i can remember so yeah i understand and so he pointed out when a symbol like that, you you lose a symbol like that, especially in a time of massive change. So it gave me a good perspective on that. And I'm not going to go, uh, I, I don't feel the need to go, I, I just, there's, there's a lot of points that can be made about royalty and about monarchy. But in a sense, Queen Elizabeth was put into place in that position. She didn't have a choice about being put in that position. And, uh, you know, the country of Great Britain has lost a symbol of stability. And at a time when there's already so much, we've talked about the leaders changing so much. We've had uh, Liz Truss replace Boris Johnson just two days before. So in a time of instability, it's a little weird for people in England. So we'll talk, I'm sure, to some of our English friends next week about this. But I thought Russell Brand's comments on the Queen were quite good, and people should seek them out on YouTube. Now, have you been following the Duke-BYU racial slur scandal? Yeah, Lee, it came to my attention, and, uh, you know— you might as well hit me with a—no, I'm not going to say that, but I'm, I was just so surprised that 
you know, I know where BYU is because of sports. It's in Utah. And, you know, I heard about this, uh, this Duke girl. I know Duke well. Uh, um, my girl's from uh, the area. And so I know Duke Wells as well. And to hear that uh, this, this young black woman, 19-year-old, said that a, uh, a young white man in, this, in the audience of a volleyball game was calling her the N-word for two hours straight, I just found it to be the most unbelievable thing in 2022. Yes, because you, you'd think a person sitting next to him would do something, right? It's a Mormon school. You know, I, I, I haven't been around too many Mormons or a Mormon population like like Utah, but I would expect that if they started hearing that, the whole audience would be like, you know what I mean? They would all turn and, and gasp and like, yo, what are you doing? Mormons have a—they're uh, a little, I guess, itchy about the race issue. Uh, you, you could see it the way Mitt Romney talked. Now, we have that clip about—they're talking about this. It turns out— BYU did an extensive investigation. And how many examples of the N-word did they find, Rod? Negative 10. Right. So there's a guy in the audience calling her whitey. That's what you're saying? Is that the negative? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Ofei, honky? <laughs> Were they Something doing like that? that? My favorite is Ofei, and I hardly hear anyone say it. Because it's very 70s. But someone on Twitter said it, and I just enjoy that. So so let's play that clip and hear the talk about this latest racial hoax. Hit it. The queen of women's college basketball has heard the story of Elijah Fletcher. Cleotha Abstin, a career criminal, stalked, kidnapped, and murdered the 34-year-old schoolteacher on Friday. Fletcher, a mother and wife, was out on an early morning jog in her hometown of Memphis, one of the most dangerous cities in America. According to statistics, you have a 1 in 12 chance of being a victim of violent or property crime while living in Memphis. I wonder if Don Staley knows any of this. The South Carolina women's coach recently canceled the Gamecocks home-and-home -home series against Brigham Young University because a Duke volleyball player, Rachel Richardson, claimed BYU fans taunted her with racial slurs. Staley said, quote, I just wanted to make sure our players didn't have to endure that because if something happened of that manner, I don't have the words to comfort them. Really? BYU was scheduled to play at South Carolina on November 7th. Next year, the Gamecocks were supposed to play at BYU. There's been no definitive evidence presented that the BYU crowd taunted Richardson or her teammates. The allegations first surfaced when Richardson's godmother, Lessa Pamplin, a political candidate in Texas, tweeted that Richardson was racially harassed throughout the entirety of a televised volleyball match. Pamplin has a documented history of making anti-white racial remarks and promoting racial hoaxes. BYU has a long history of hosting sporting events on its campus. The school's basketball teams have a long history of employing black players and assistant coaches. BYU is known for its homogeneous white campus. It doesn't have a reputation for using racial slurs at sporting events. Today, a group of state politicians in South Carolina, the South Carolina Freedom Caucus, 
wrote a letter to Staley and Athletics Director Ray Tanner demanding the school explain its hasty decision-making, writing, quote, Why did the University of South Carolina cancel the series against BYU when no supporting evidence existed to warrant such action? Will the University of South Carolina reschedule with BYU and issue a public apology if the allegations continue to be shown as false? Is it now the policy of the university to forego, or more concerning, ignore any fact-finding missions into allegations of wrongdoing? So, we live in an age where the accusation of something like racism is enough. Have you noticed that, Rod? The mere accusation. No one waits for evidence, right? Yeah, and plus, you know, we, we kind of live in a, uh, a matriarchy now, so you got to believe all women. So this 19-year-old, you have to believe for Lee. Right. But there's no proof. So it's a very shocking situation, but not shocking at all if you're used to the way things work now. Coming up next, on the backstory, let's take a short break and then talk to our friend Tyler Nixon. This is the backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now is a great friend of the show, political commentator and deadhead, Tyler Nixon. Hey now, Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great, uh, Lee. It's good to be with you as always. And I uh, wanted to wish you a very happy birthday. As I understand Thanks, that you're, uh, you've got a birthday tomorrow. And uh, my mind's a week from today. So it's always good to find, uh, you know, real smart people born in September, other smart people. <laughs> Yeah, well, 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 happy birthday to you, if I don't shock you. Thank you. So we've Thank had you. people like Ted Raw come on and talk about the history of communist movements in the world. But I'm going to ask you about the history of the dead for a second, because I was thinking <laughs> about you, because you live in Denver. We've talked about that before. But you know where the Denver Zoo fits into Grateful Dead lore? I don't, although it's, it's right up the street from where I live. Oh, really? So I, I thought of you because I was telling my girlfriend about Owsley Stanley. You Now, you, of course, know who Owsley Stanley is, right? Bear. Yes, of course. Yes. And so if, if people see the bear, my girlfriend had no idea what the hell is a bear about. You sometimes see a, a, a dancing bear, Grateful Dead fans. I'm not wearing that in my bear shirt. But bear was a man named... Owsley Stanley, and he was the dead's audio engineer, right? He built the wall of sound, correct? Uh, I don't know that he built the wall of sound. I mean, he was involved critically. I think he might have been in prison at that point when the wall of sound was uh, constructed. But he he was also there, obviously, there, the supplier of massive amounts of LSD to them, as well as he was was the chemist, you know, a genius. The man was a genius. and, and he, he was. And I, yeah, you're right about the wall of sound. He was, I, I think, involved, but I think he was in prison at the time. He was definitely but, uh, uh, critical to their sound and their sound systems and the development of it, for sure. I mean, probably even more than the wall of sound. And Owsley 
was legendary for making what's called Purple Owsley the in this in this San Francisco acid scene. He was supposedly the best maker of acid ever, right? That's the reputation he had. No question. Yeah, there's. I mean, the people would rave about it decades later. And this is at a time LSD was legal, but then they made it illegal because at first LSD was perfectly legal. And he perfected his craft during that period, but then he made it illegal. And do you know where he eventually had a lab? Across from the Denver Zoo. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, so I a little, thought a little dead lore locally, right up the street. Right. Because the the big, you know, I assume the dead lore also is they've done so many great shows at Red Rocks, right? Oh, yeah, sure. And in, in Colorado, generally, they used to yeah. play uh, uh, yes. the McNichols Arena as well. Um, yeah, yeah. No, they've got a real big track record here. But there's a little history for people of bear. There you go. I'll have to so find out where, so. where it was. It a, a house, a house across from the zoo there somewhere. One of the neighborhoods there. I'm not sure. I assume it was at a time when he was, you know, driving around and he had rolling a lab because yeah. he was trying to avoid <laughs> the cops. Huh. I'll tell you, man, it, it takes real, real genius to, to be able to do that. I mean, it is not some uh, like sort of. Uh, <laughs> kitchen type process to, to, to synthesize, uh, synthesize LSD. And it requires some serious, I mean, there's dangerous chemicals and there's a lot of, so many steps involved. I'm waiting for someone to figure out this would make a good TV series or movie. You agreed? Oh, his life would, this, probably, no, no, no question. Probably more interesting than the band. Well, kind of equal, but uh, you know, I yeah, agree. Yeah. So, well, I mean, they, they were musicians. Well, Owsley was all into all kinds of stuff, you know, all kinds of crazy things beyond the music. And you know, I mean, he was. Uh, I think he and Garcia were in the army together, weren't they? Or is that that's was it Robert Hunter or Owsley? I'm trying to remember, but I know I, I yeah. think it was Owsley was in the in the army in the early '60s uh, when Jerry was in, which lasted about six months. <laughs> I'm surprised it lasted that long. Now, now. Do you have any comments on the death of the queen? Uh, do you care? Uh, well, I thought you and you and uh, uh, Al Killer, speaking of owls or owls, you know, they, they, I had a great, great uh, back and forth. Yeah, exactly. I had a great back and forth. Um, and I was uh, just intrigued by uh, your comments, actually. Um, I, I honestly, um, I have trouble getting any kind of any sort of like either sentimentality or I mean, like when Pope John Paul II passed, I mean, that was a big deal to me. Um, at least, you know, as someone who is a student of history, as someone who grew up uh, with him as the pope, um, I think the the monarchy in England has given far too much attention. Um, obviously, their wealth is what all that exists now. I mean, yes, they have. Uh, powers over the government there, um, you know, appointment, obviously, of the prime minister and their, their you know, their true real powers that, that reside still in the crown. But um, it's so antiquated. Well, I agree. I, I would add wealth and celebrity. Yeah, as exactly. Yeah, and group. that's really that's the only thing that's that's kept it kept it, I think, um, from basically just falling on on the rocks of uh, you know, or the, say the dustbin of history, however you want to uh 
however you want to say it. And I, I personally, um, you know, I think it, I die. I mean, look, the, the greatest and most intense interest was obviously when, uh, Diana was, uh, you know, the uh, princess of Wales, I guess it is. And, you know, her death, obviously, um, I think there's a lot, I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot, there's something to be said for the stability of it that it provides to the people in the UK, but it hasn't really stopped the UK from devolving into a bit of a police state. Um, and you know, the queen, I mean, what's, you know, where she, she's basically just sort of sat there while they, they have, uh, you know, all that's gone on, particularly the lockdowns and things like that. I mean, she, of course she was not in her nineties. I mean, but that being said, I think, um, you know, these sort of figureheads that have some level of power, um, but by what divine right? I mean, just by sheer hereditary succession. I mean, it's 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 almost it's yeah, it's it's not just antiquated. It's really reactionary. And I, and I think it's it's something that should be that the people there should consider phasing out permanently because it's such a throwback, you know, to the ultimate sort of. Uh, untouchable or unassailable, at least by any you know, democratic means, autocracy, you know, monarchy. No. I mean, again, the divine right of kings or, or the monarchy, it's like you can't touch them. No, they're, they're God ordained, ordained by God to rule you. And whoever they're mere, merely uh, being, you know, coming out of the right womb makes you somehow, uh, you know, it's, it's, it really embodies, I think, the worst sorts of um, – elements of wealth and power and uh nepotism and whatever have you and 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 sort of uh again unelected power so i don't know people people seem to to, to you know have such reverence for it i i personally i mean i don't have disdain or hostility towards it but i also certainly hold no reverence and i don't think that queen elizabeth was anything i mean yet she was an historic figure but um for, I mean, yeah, maybe coming out of World War II, but otherwise she was just a, she was just sat there and events, you know, happened around her and she really did nothing that I saw to advance humanity in any meaningful way. Well, I, yeah, well, I would agree with that. Let's bring on our friend Jim Hoff from Gateway Pundit. He's online now. Jim, how you doing? Hi, guys. Hi, Lee. Hey, it's an honor to be with well, you, Mr. Hoff. I, I'm a huge fan of yours and your brothers, and uh, as as is Roger uh, Stone, who I, you know, uh, my uh, client and friend, good friend. And the Gateway Pundit is just where it's at as far as uh, finding out what's really going on. And and thank you, thank you, thank you. What? Well, thank you. Very nice. Appreciate it. Yeah, and he, he even says that when you're on, on the show, Jim, he's he said before how big a fan he is of Gateway Pundit. And you were nowhere near a microphone. So he means it. Oh, all right. And you're going to enjoy being on with Tyler. You know, Tyler grew up down the street from Joe Biden. Did you know that? <laughs> really? really? Yeah, he knew oh, Hunter. Yeah, so, hey. <laughs> How long have you known Hunter and Bo? Oh, How old uh, were well, they? Probably, uh, we were, we were early, pre-teens, probably. Um, I went to, we had to church together every Sunday. Um, my parents bought uh, the parcel directly next to uh, Biden's original house on uh, Centerville Road. And uh, and he was a real jerk about it. Let me tell you, he was a real jerk. I mean, behind the scenes, he was not, I mean, he, I'm just amazed he got elected in Delaware, small as it was, as many people as he's burned and run afoul of. He's a serial uh, 
Um, he stiffs people, working people. I mean, there were people who would do work to his property. He would just say, I'm not, they would, I mean, literally stiffed his paper boy. The man's father had to come around and demand that he pay the paper boy. Um, really? And so I went to, oh God, yeah, yeah. I'd love to interview I know, it's, that if you want to go on the record sometime. Sure. Sure. I was, I've been, I've kind of put together like the sketches of a book. Um, Roger keeps urging me to do it. And I'm like, I don't know that I could come out with anything, uh, it would be bombshell, but it certainly I could tell you about what a an opportunistic uh, chest puffing blowhard he he always has been. Um, and, you know, he would come into church, uh, which was the, the St. Joseph on the Brandywine. Um, I was an altar boy, so I had the unique view. You know, I could see the whole the entire uh, um, you know, the, the assembly and, and Biden would come in just before communion so he could walk up and, oh, look you know, there's Joe in church, you know, and, and then literally go down the aisle and walk right back out. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, no, no, you can't sit through the liturgy, of the word with the rest of us or any of the rest of the, you know, the, uh, ceremony. No, it's gotta be, gotta, gotta make the appearance, you know? And, um, Gosh. yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's just, um, Biden is just, oh God, I've, it's, I feel like we've been, I've been afflicted with this man. I went to high school with Bo and Hunt and, uh, that's where Joe went as well, the same high school. So I'd see him at homecomings and, um, yeah. And, but yet I, my first campaign besides Reagan Bush 84 was John Burris for Senate. Um, because I felt Biden was a dangerous menace back then, even as a 12 year old and worked the entire summer stuffing envelopes for Burris and, uh, doing lit drops and, and you name it. And Tyler's also worked on a happy note for people like Newt Gingrich, right, Tyler? Yes, that's correct. I, I joined Newt's staff in the uh, summer of 94. So it was a good time to join. Certainly he was minority whip and uh, with Tony Blankley there in the, that little shoebox office off the house floor. Next thing we know, we're, they're proposing the contract and boom, it was like speaker. And suddenly we're just, uh, yeah, we're, we were walking on air. Those were heady times. Uh, I wish we could see those again. Now, Jim, I'm curious I know you did not like it, but how bad do you think the Joe Biden angry red speech was? Do you think it's going to backfire and hurt the Democrats in the midterms, which we're pretty close to now? You know, I, I think it was very damaging if anyone saw it. I, I, the, the advantage Joe Biden has, of course, is that uh, the media is not going to report on it. Or if they do report on it, you know, they're not going to explain what actually happened, which was it was the first time a president of the United States went on uh, the attack with Marines standing in the background in front of Liberty Hall um, uh, against his op his opposition and uh, the opposing party and the former president. It was really unbelievable. And the, uh, uh, you know, the, the visuals that are coming out of it are just uh, horrific. As uh, I've heard some people say, even today, it's, it was just demonic. Um, you've never seen anything like it. Uh, uh, so uh, and anyone who uh, takes the time to go look at it, I think they'd be appalled. Uh, at least I would say 70 percent of the country. Um, but uh, the media, of course, is going to bail them out once again. So they're just going to ignore it. I think that's probably their plan with this incident. Um, and they're just not going to report on it. And they're going to report on other things like, uh, you know, Donald Trump keeping uh, all these documents uh, at, at Mar-a-Lago. How dare he do that? You know, Ronald Reagan was was a good judge of character. And I think he really he had lived a, a, a very um, 
sort of diverse life, uh, being exposed to all kinds of different people, and particularly living in Hollywood, uh, you know, the more the more uh, uh, let's just say less uh, couth ilk, uncouth people. And he, you know, he certainly nailed the left in the speeches he gave in, in the uh, early '60s, very prescient. One thing that he wrote in his diary, he wrote four words about Joe Biden. And I think the man summed him up even before Joe Biden was really anything. And he said, smooth, but pure demagogue. And it's funny because, you know, when, when people unfortunately succumb to senility, um, the last, usually the last faculty to go, whatever it be, or character trait, is the strongest one. So we have the unique position of a president who's basically a senile demagogue. And, you know, the, the statements he made in that speech are, are beyond despicable. I mean, with statements, the lies he told, the, the mischaracterization, I mean, and it doesn't surprise me. Joe Biden has always been a pandering opportunist and didn't care. And, and he's really one of the original modern day demagogues. I mean, you listen to his speeches in the mid 1980s, like the NAACP, where he basically accused outright Republicans of being racist um, in, in no uncertain so, terms so at, at a time when that was a really explosive racism. Term. Let me talk. That's a good segue, Tyler, because you've got a piece of a Gateway Pundit right now talking about Lloyd Lightfoot. Lloyd Lightfoot, Greg Abbott, and the governor of Arizona, they're now sending illegal immigrants who come across the border into Chicago, correct, Jim? Yeah, that's, that's correct. It's been going on now for a little while. And Lloyd Lightfoot, of course, has said that is racist. So what's Lloyd Lightfoot doing about it? Yeah, this is this is unbelievable. You know, it's 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 really uh, stunning to see the hypocrisy here in full display. These cities like Washington D.C., New York, Chicago, they you know pride themselves on being these uh, you know safe havens for illegal immigrants, and uh, and yet when uh, the governors of Texas and Arizona start sending just a few, just a trickle. Of, of the amount of uh, illegal aliens that are coming into their state. Um, as, as we know, in Texas, the Del Rio sector, there's over 6,000 people a day streaming across just that one passageway into the United States, 6,000. Um, they're not sending all 6,000 to New York or Chicago or D.C. They're just sending a couple busloads. Um, and these, these mayors are going crazy. They, they, they supposedly run sanctuary cities, but they are losing their minds. And Lori Lightfoot came out this week and called G Governor Abbott uh, inhumane and a racist for pushing and, and sending a couple busloads to Chicago of these, these migrants. Um, so what happens then is, as we reported at Gateway Pundit, so what happens is then she takes these same migrants and she buses them herself over to one of the affluent suburbs there in Chicago and uh, and without explaining, without warning, uh, she's dumping them off in one of these affluent uh, suburbs. So she's doing the exact same thing that she's accusing uh, these governors of and uh, sees nothing, you know, nothing wrong with, with, with their actions. So it, it really is unbelievable to, to see this in full display by the left. And just shows that they can't take a dose of their own medicine. They don't care about the people of Brownsville or or any of these other cities. They're being flooded with people. But right. when 
as you as you say, a trickle comes to their city, they freak out. Tyler, what do you think about that? I think that the Democrat Party basically is the political expression of psychopath uh, psychopathology. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, hypocrisy isn't even a word that that's sufficient anymore to describe just the 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 diabolical, um, completely lacking any self awareness and purposefully so. Um, and and yet at the same time projecting their crimes onto innocent people. I mean, they're, they're, it's really again, it's, it's I mean, we're dealing with psychopaths and sociopaths to a lesser extent, and and that's the only way to explain it, frankly. Um, and and until we rid rid ourselves of this, uh, you know, this infection, this cancer that is this current Democrat Party, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Yes, yeah, scourge. Exactly. That's a great great word. Is for it. scourge? And you're not going to disagree with that, are you, Jim? Oh, no. I think he's, that was spot on. It's just, um, it, it seems in, in decision after decision, uh, the, the left today is just uh, taking us off a cliff. And uh, they, uh, and, and yet they're unwilling or unable to see the consequences of their decisions and what's happening. Right now in Europe, we're seeing these uh, all-time record in electricity rates, the prices they're skyrocketing. They cut off all of their um, uh, domestic supplies of oil and gas and coal, and they depend on Russia. Now Russia's uh, blocking it off, and their their uh, their energy costs are going through the roof. And yet we have then governors like out in California, Governor Newsom, at the same time is talking about eliminating gas and coal and going going green in Cal- in California and their prices are, are going through the roof and they can't keep up. They're, they're, they're having roving blackouts. I was just talking Lee and Tyler with a friend before I came on with you guys, her parents came from Armenia and when they got to the United States, you know, 30 years ago, they were like, wow, this is amazing. A society where your electricity is on all day. You know, they hadn't experienced that when they were in uh, Armenia or Lebanon, when they when they fled to Lebanon. Uh, they, they had that in the United States. Today, um, the Democrats are bringing us backwards. They're bringing us into a third world state where we have to wonder, uh, you know, if we're going to have electricity on in the evening uh, because of these bl- roving blackouts in California. It, it, and this, this is all policy. But this isn't because we don't have the resources. It's because Democrats are making these wild decisions, and we're all being affected, and yet I don't think enough people are really aware of what's happening. Now, yeah. now you, I mean, they, they would, they would uh, go ahead. <clears throat> I was going to talk, we only got a couple minutes left with Jim. Jim, you had a video clip on your on Gateway Pundit this Tuesday showing something about the voting system in Michigan, right? What's that footage, and what's become of that? Um, well, we're, we're doing some follow-ups on that. We released Tuesday uh, some, some exclusive video. It came from the drop boxes in Detroit, Michigan, from 2020. We had a group, the MC4EI group in Michigan, went through uh, hundreds of hours of footage and put together this clip we, we showed and we aired that went viral of um, numerous instances of uh, ballot traffickers dumping uh, uh, just handfuls of, of ballots into these drop boxes. You know, the left wants to tell us this is secure. The media, the media wants to tell us these are secure. You know, they, these drop boxes, not, no problems with them. 
It's all a lie. We had the proof there. And uh, we're the only ones who got that footage in the country. We're the only ones who went through that data and, and looked at all the video and put together this string of people, uh, 13 minutes long of people loading those drop boxes with numerous ballots. So we do have a couple more uh, videos to come out, but uh, that should be enough to get rid of these drop boxes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we don't have a Republican Party that's worth a damn. Um, they're not speaking up, standing up. Uh, protecting us and protecting our elections. But, you know, we're going to keep uh, uh, putting this type of information out so people can see it because it's very powerful. But, of course, the authorities in Michigan want to get right on this, right? <laughs> um, you know what is happening, and we're going to put up a, a report on this. We're working on this right now. But Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is trying to say, oh, there's nothing to see here. Well, you know, Democrats would like anything goes. That's what they want with elections. Anything goes. If, if you can stuff whatever you can in these uh, drop boxes or, or whatever you want to do should be allowed. Uh, we disagree. We think we should have legitimate elections in the United States, and we shouldn't have all this fraud that the Democrats and Jocelyn Benson is promoting. Uh, you know, shame on her. She's lawless, and she's the secretary of state, and hopefully she won't be in the coming year. Well, that footage sounds like Russian disinformation to me, Jim. <laughs> you know, it's video evidence and clear proof of something, so it must be Russian disinfo. Jim Hoff, thanks so much for coming on with us. People can go check out the Gateway Pundit. It's one of the top independent news sites in the country. And what, I'd like to, what's your current—yeah, go ahead, Tyler. I just want to tell say, Jim, I'd like to reach out to you and— uh, I, I did a lot of writing at you know opinion writing for uh, with Roger Stone, and uh, would like to talk to you if you're if you'd, uh, if you'd be uh, willing willing to give me a minute. So so can our producer Rod pass on your info, Jim? Absolutely, that's great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Oh, okay, Jim. Great talking to you, buddy. Have a good weekend. That's Jim Hoff from Gateway Pundit. And let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll do a short segment with Tyler responding to some of this stuff and. That's coming up next on The Backstory. And we are back on The Backstory, the show that takes you the truth behind the headlines. We're joined by guest host, co-host, Tyler Nixon. And we got, well, let me do the boom first. Let me have you do it, Tyler. You get the honors. You are listening to The Backstory. Well done. So coming up this hour, we have a great interview with Jared Kopas, who wrote the book, Ukraine Forever Upon. It's a great book. It takes a deep dive, and we talk about Christina Freeland. And it's a fantastic interview I taped already. And we're taking your calls if you get in quick, 202-521-1320. And that's on the backstory. <laughs> well, before you get to your next call, I just wanted to, uh, to point out, if I may, that I think— yes. It's really it's really interesting. If you look at the current incarnation of the radical left and the Democrat Party, uh, you know, they're very Stalinist in their tactics. 
but really ideologically and sort of uh, um, in terms of their entire sort of approach to things, they're really Maoist, if you look at it. Um, they don't care who, I mean, they don't even care if they killed their own. I mean, you know, you look at Stalin, the purges, that was more of Stalin's paranoia. With Mao, the deaths were, were designed, were engineered. Um, and, uh, you know, millions of Chinese uh, people, his own people. And uh, that's, you know, something that's unique, I think, is to, to, to that, that thread of um, authoritarianism is that these people don't care if their own citizens, their own, they, they don't recognize even, you know, the, the citizenship or the, the sort of the kinship of a nation because they have this larger agenda. And they will kill as many of their fellow citizens as, as necessary or cause as much, inflict as much pain and destruction to accomplish their ends, consolidate their power. And, uh, um, you know, frankly, rule perpetually. Well, you know, I'll take it back to the dad for a second, because I made this point early in the week. I made the point that the dead as a band, their politics were, you know, kind of all over the place. They did benefits for the Panthers. But one thing's for sure about the dead. They were anti-authoritarian. You agree, Tyler? Absolutely. Yeah. Anarchist, really, in a sense. Um, and until, of course, Jerry passed away and, and you know, they, they had a lot of money and a lot, you know, something to protect, but still nevertheless got in bed with, uh, you know, the Bay Area Democrats. So, um, yeah, that's that's not particularly uh, it's a mixed bag, like you said, I think. Yes. But but, you know, while they were an ongoing concern as a band, they were clearly anti-authoritarian and, in fact, argued against certain things they were asked to do because they said, we're not going to tell people what to do, right? That's true, yeah. Yeah, they, they just said they didn't want to use their prominence, their, their, you know, their fan, the influence of their fans for any political ends other than, uh, you know, altruistic or charitable type causes like, uh, you know, the fight against uh, HIV, AIDS, basically, that kind of thing. But, you know, have good, people, good for them. Right. And the people on the left who I like are anti-authoritarian. Not everyone on the left. I think the left tends to skew that way because they they're in favor of government action. But not everyone on the left is authoritarian. Do you agree with that? Is that true in your experience, Tyler? No, I would argue that basically those people who are anti-authoritarian are not actually on the left. They might share some viewpoints in terms of government action uh, concerning you know social welfare issues and things like that. Um, and certain key hot button issues. But uh, to me, all uh, authoritarian ideologies are left wing. And also, I think, um, you know, because otherwise, what, what do you have? I mean, they want they want this false paradigm. Oh, well, fascist is right wing authoritarianism and, you know, left wing authoritarianism. Well, where does that leave libertarianism? You know, the, the on the spectrum, authoritarianism is one and libertarianism is at the other or anarchy or whatever, voluntarism. So, you know, they've got their whole spectrum kind of screwed up. But um, I think that what you see with Glenn Greenwald, people like that, and the, you know, the principled liberals, I'd say they're liberals. They're not left though. Um, if you want to get down to it, I mean, you know, there's a difference to me and I've always differentiated between a liberal um, and a leftist. And I think, you know, the, the, um, they tried to steal the word liberal for many years, and it became really, as you remember, in the, peaking in the George H.W. Bush era, a dirty word, frankly, well, practically, you know, to be called a liberal, um, which is a shame because it, it has the proper root, liber, freedom. You know, it's, it's 
classical liberals. You, uh, you know, these, these people, Literally, these are the people yeah. who I think. Yeah, I mean, that's it's the same to me. I consider myself a classical liberal or libertarian. And I, I think we I'm happy to, to seize that word back and call them what they are. Because you can't even give any coherence to their to their uh, ideology of power, control, and authority, which is just left. I mean, left, and that's what you're. You know, you, it, it really, in so many ways, fits them. You know, you're left. Uh, whereas right, in many ways, is similarly, I think you know the right is right, and the left is left, and they're going to leave you out. You're going to be left behind with the left. Um, but you know, they, if they want something as, as, as ridiculous, as I a, get, uh, gotta go, go to a call because we got a hard sure. out coming up. So you got two two five two one thirteen twenty. Our friend Ingrid in DC. Ingrid, quickly, what's on your mind? Okay, the, the quick version. Juan Passarelli's film, the the uh, war on journalism, the case against the case of Julian Assange. We're going to be screening it here in DC on the 18th at the library. And as it turns out, this is really a work in progress. He's adding things to it. He's been very busy because he's coming up, going to be into some film festival in Berlin. But the version that we're going to be screening is actually uh, newer and more than what's currently available on the internet. You can see it on YouTube or on Vimeo. The, the uh, war against journalism. Well, I, I don't want to rush this because, again, I have a, a definite out. But can you tell us where people can find out more about the screening of, of this Assange film? Uh, I'll, I'll call in again. I can't tell you too much more because we're sort of up in the air on um, who's going to be the guest and whether or not we're going to be live streaming. But Joe Laurie is going to be hosting. It's going to be at the Cleveland Park Library on Sunday afternoon. Uh, September 18. Okay, please go back with that info. And I've been thinking about the VSF, but it's harder than you might think. So I've been thinking about it, but it's tricky to do what we talked about. So great calling, Grid. Thanks a lot. And uh, do you think, Tyler, real quickly, that Assange thinks about this war, Russia versus you, the new world order in the form of Ukraine would be different if Assange were free now. Oh, well, that's boy, that's a tough question. Um, I I don't know. I honestly I can't I can't formulate a coherent answer because you know who knows what he would have been, gotten a hold of, but but would it have made a difference? Because his imprisonment sort of is part and parcel. I mean, would the media be different? Would it not be the propaganda machine that it's become? Were Assange still around? I, I don't think so. I think it would be just as, you know, we would see just as much deceit and and propaganda and um, mass deception. Really, I guess you could say. Well, um, I think that's whether Assange is free or Tyler. not. Tyler, and and, and we, we now have to break because uh, I want to thank you, Tyler Nixon, for great guest co-hosting. Uh, it's I, an honor to be with you. And thanks so much to Jim Hoff for calling in as a guest. And check out the Gateway Planet. Now let's go to the. We, we still got time, Lee. Oh, uh, forgive me. I thought it was tw ten, but it's twenty. Shall I sing? Right? Shall I sing Happy Birthday to you? <laughs> uh, oh, please don't. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> good call. They so, say it's uh, your birthday. 
But you know how conscientious I was, Command Central, even though I had the time wrong. We have 10 more minutes, Tyler, but— We still have that, we still have that clip of the Vegas. Okay. Let's—did you hear about the—speaking of Assange, a journalist was killed. He wrote for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. He was a major—he was in his 70s. He was an important journalist in Las Vegas. Did you hear he was murdered in his driveway yes, in Vegas? And, yes, and I, and, and, uh, and I was just—I hate to say it, the Democrat politician who apparently, you know, allegedly perpetrated this heinous crime looks just like any run-of-the-mill Democrat freak that you would find in politics and Democrat politics in any uh, given state or municipality, frankly. Sort of, you know, now, uh, really, really thin personalities, unhinged. You know, power mad um, and maladjusted, malcontent, and this this guy epitomized it. Sad for that journalist. And this horrible thing. This guy had lost an election recently, and he blamed the journalists yeah. because the journalists were reporting on inappropriate going ons in his office, and he lost the election, so he killed the journalists. Now, I think that's horrible, but I'm going to point out that Ukraine which we're supporting with billions of dollars as a kill list of people, including journalists, including the bass player for Pink Floyd. You a Pink Floyd yeah. fan, Tyler? I just saw Roger Waters on Tuesday. Amazing and show. How, and how was it? Yeah. Oh, amazing. I mean, some of the political messages, I think he, he unfortunately mixes in a bit of the uh, the woke stuff, but Otherwise, I mean, he's, you know, I, I know where his spirit and his ethos are, and uh, I agree with him on so much. And and he just put a, puts on a, you know, generally I would be the, I would be uh, somewhat repelled, I guess, or repulsed by someone who would mix any sort of politics, especially sort of radical um, liberal politics into, into a, a musical performance, especially music that I love. But you know, I felt it was really powerful the way he did it. He's a great storyteller. And this show was just, I mean, it was really singular. Every every time he goes on tour, it's a whole new thing. But he mixed in some great new songs and uh, um, also just did some great Pink Floyd uh, standards. And uh, the sound was just, I mean, it was crystal clear. I was up in the nosebleeds. Crystal clear and booming. Um, and they had a four point stage that almost formed like a cross sort of, um, like almost like a Celtic cross, not like a traditional crucifix. And, um, he would go and walk out to the end of the, you know, each one for parts of different songs. So you'd see him like right there out there alone, either playing bass or singing. Um, he is just a, a, a genius and a, uh, a, a, an international, a global treasure for what the music that he, what he's produced over the last 50. 50 years. And the fact that Ukraine would have have him on a kill list, those people should be yes. marched out of there by our forces, frankly, or anybody we have there as the criminals that they are. I mean, that is disgusting. Whoever whoever's responsible for that is a war criminal, as far as I'm concerned. At minimum. So let's a play a clip about what happened in Vegas, because I want to protect the rights of journalists to tell stories without being killed. And that goes for people in Las Vegas and people in Ukraine, and people on tour. So let's play the clip. <laughs> Hit it. Of open murder. This is a terrible and jarring homicide 
one that has deeply impacted Las Vegas. This is very serious. A Democrat politician looks like he murdered a journalist in cold blood just because the journalist did his job. He took his First Amendment rights and his life with a knife. Isn't this what the media warned us would happen? Didn't they tell us that journalists were under attack? Then why all of a sudden, when a journalist gets slashed to death by a politician who didn't like the coverage, the media can't find any place for the story? Have you seen the story anywhere? CNN's barely touched it. And they didn't even mention the accused killer's a Democrat. Same with the New York Times. Short little story, no mention that he's a Democrat. You'll never hear about it again. A Democrat just murdered a journalist. Does the media only care that the Saudis do it? Jamal Khashoggi got hacked up and we heard about it for years. And he wasn't even an American journalist. And now an American politician stabs an American journalist to death in Las Vegas. And the media doesn't talk about it because the politician's a Democrat. You know, no. the, the level of malice and just vicious, animalistic uh, animus that it takes to, I mean, when he could have just shot the guy in the head and walked away. No, he had to stab him. I mean, a horrifying, you know, vicious, I mean, horrible way to kill somebody, to die as well. And, and not to mention the amount of blood that this guy apparently couldn't couldn't get zeal that was found on his shoes as he and, and he walks in dressed as a woman. I mean, this is this is, this is like <laughs> and yeah, and, and Jesse Waters is right. No, you, you don't hear about it. But if it was a Republican, it would be it would be banner headlines nonstop round the clock. You know, breaking news, the latest in the you know Republican killer of a journalist, no less. I mean, it's yeah, it's just sad. One of their own, too. They don't care to report on this this uh, this poor man who is doing his job, unlike the, doing the job they don't do, frankly, the the propaganda machine, the corporate media um, and paid for it with his life because of some kooky, well, whacked out Democrat megalomaniac. Well, I'm glad that Jesse Waters brought it up. I wonder if Jesse Waters brought Daria Dugina, a 29 year old woman who's a journalist covering stuff in Ukraine was blown up in Moscow. See, I'm I'm consistent. Killing journalists is bad. Killing people Absolutely. because of things they believe is bad. But, you know, broadly, and I, I got to say, I really admire your friend Tucker Carlson. He has said some stuff on his show on Fox about the Russian-Ukraine conflict that I'm surprised he's able to get away with. But he is— the closest thing the mainstream media has to being honest on the war. Have you noticed that? That he's become bolder about this stuff he's saying, Tyler? On so, oh yeah, on so many issues. And he realizes, I mean, you're right, it is absolutely courageous of him because uh, there's, no, there's no one else. There's no, there's no division. It, they're all about Ukraine. They're all about, you know, Putin's a monster. And there's no balance there. And, and you know, I think it's part of, partially because he was— Tucker is, does not like being uh, defamed, obviously, or who, who does? But I mean, particularly when they accused, for example, Eric Swalwell went on his show and accused him of being a, uh, you know, a, a puppet of Putin or whatever ridiculous nonsense he said, as did Adam Schiff in their mania to, uh, you know, to uh, frame Donald Trump as having colluded with the Russians. And I think that um, rather than rather than cow, cower or, you know, uh, sort of pull back and be like, geez, I don't, I don't need to be, I don't need to have those kinds of accusations made against me. Tucker instead 
goes up, you know, doubles down and says, you know, screw you people. You know, I'm, I don't care. I'll report the truth, even if it means that, uh, you know, Putin isn't the, isn't the bad guy. And uh, he's done that. And he's and he's been the well, a lone voice, frankly, very, very little. I mean, Fox is the only the only one that's not just in the tank for uh, you know, for Zelensky and that whole that whole sort of uh, criminal oligarchy. And they're not as bold. You know, people like Sean Hannity are pretty bad on it. But Tucker's great. Do you think personally, the, real quick answer, because now we're really almost out of time. Do you think right. it changed for Tucker when his family was threatened by Antifa, uh, Antifa mob went to his house? Did that Tucker you? is. Yeah, I think it did. I think there's been a number of things that he have shocked him because he never was subject to them before. And, he, and it's it's exposed to him on a personal level, just how ruthless and how unhinged and how far these people are willing to go to get their way. And I think that really pisses him off his mild manners as he comes across on screen behind the scenes. He definitely is. Uh, he gets, you know, he gets hot about it and I don't blame him. Okay. Now we're actually out of time coming up a great interview with Jared Copas on the NATO Nazi, Christina Freeland. It's packed with so much information. You're going to stay tuned. Thanks again, Tyler. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. on the backstory and we're talking about Christina Freeland and her Nazi grandfather and her lying about it and we're joined now by author Jareth Kopas. Hey Jareth, how you doing? I'm doing good, thanks for having me on. Now you of course wrote the great book on Ukraine, Ukraine Forever Upon and this is really I consider must reading for anyone who wants background on Ukraine. You did a great job there. And tell people where they can find your book, Ukraine Forever Upon. Sure. Right now it's for sale on rodionpress.com. That's R-O-D-I-O-N press.com. Thanks so much. And Jareth, I saw you have another book the called, it's sort of timely in a tragic way. We right. recently had this mass shooting uh, in Memphis, and I don't think that was avoidable probably. The guy shooting people at random, but maybe you have something to say different because you wrote a book called "Preparing the Worst" and for for the worst. And tell people what the subtitle of "Preparing for the Worst" is. Uh, it's being able to cover everything from mass shootings to tornadoes to hurricanes—you name it. Any major event that's detrimental to your health, I try to cover just a little bit. And that sounds like a very practical, helpful book. So. So what caused you to write that? Well, I've always been interested in uh, kind of self-preservation, being able to uh, be able to survive on your own without having to necessarily have help from our government or our police or even anybody else. So I've I've kind of fallen into uh, being able to rely on my own instincts to assist my family and cover anything negative that happens in our life. And uh, when, when it comes to mass shootings, broadly, what's your advice on 
uh, mass shootings, what, what's quick advice you give to people on avoiding that? Because that sometimes seems like a bolt of lightning that's yeah. difficult. But but what, what is your advice, Sheriff? My main advice is don't try to be a hero and know where exits are. If you know where multiple exits are, uh, whenever we go into a store, into a mall, which isn't very often, we always know where at least three exits are, whether they be employee or whatnot. If there's a shooting going on, don't be afraid to use the employee exit or exit through anywhere, but always know your exits, and that will help you tremendously. And again, people can find that on the Rodion Press site? Correct. Okay, Jareth. Now let's get into this thing with Christina Freeland. Yesterday mm-hmm. on the show, we had Mark Sabota on, and Mark misspoke. Uh, he thought Christina Freeland was up for Secretary General of the U.N. That is not true. The, the what's being, I would say, floated, and we'll talk about that if you agree, is the idea that Christina Freeland would be put in charge of NATO. Mm-hmm. And Mark pointed out yesterday, she'll never get UN General Secretary. And that's right, but that's not what she's up I agree mm-hmm. with him on that. And I actually <laughs> think Christina Freeland could get voted in as the head of NATO. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I believe that would be it's the ultimate goal because she's uh, she's been kind of groomed from her beginnings from age 11 almost for that ultimate goal of having some sort of major global position and NATO itself that I mean, having her Nazi roots with her grandfather, that would be the pinnacle really of her career and kind of what she's been pushed for for her entire life. And really it puts her in a position to de- declare war on Russia. Definitely. So now you say from age 11, that's because mm-hmm. her grandfather, Michael Chomiak, she grew up near him in Canada, right? Yeah, her mother actually divorced her father when she was very young, and they moved to Edmonton, which has a very large Ukrainian diaspora population, which included her grandfather. So he kind of became that father figure, that male role in her life, and he being a major Nazi propagandist really was able to start her out with that indoctrination at a young age. Uh, She started out in a group called PLAST, which was essentially, it's kind of like a scouts, like the boy or girl scouts we have here, but more oriented towards the style of a Hitler youth type group, where they really indoctrinate politically. And this was specifically Ukrainian, the idea that Ukrainians were freedom fighters during World War II, that people like Stefan Bandera were actually out to fight both the Nazis and Russia and were fighting for an independent Ukraine. Now, we'll get into some more detail, especially on a grandfather in a second. But mm-hmm. let me address the question that comes up with a lot of people. They say, basically, so what if her grandfather was a Nazi? It, it doesn't—you you don't control who your grandparents are. And I think— that's true, but it's not true about Christina Freeland. Is it fair? Would you consider her a Ukrainian nationalist and a Nazi? I definitely would. The groups that she's been facilitated with, that she's been orientated with, have clear anti-Semitic and clear Nazi roots and openly Nazi roots that if she were not a Nazi or if she were anti-fascist, she would never touch with a 10-foot pole. So she's 
consistently been with groups who openly either support the Nazi ideology or in secondhand ways have shown their their fascist roots. Now, she's also written books, right? Yeah, she's written, I believe, two books, and both of them kind of deal with the idea that a uh, very small amount of Jewish bankers are attempting, first they took over Russia, and now they're attempting to take over the entire world. And she even went so far as drawing a, a genetics conclusion, sort of like what Hitler spoke about, how people are genetically determined to be in a certain class, whether it be rich or poor, and they have a specific genetic code where they join this small cabal of Jewish people trying to take over the world. Now, that sounds like the kind of thing that could throw a snag in her nomination. You would think. Right. So if it comes up, those quotes are available in one of her books, right? Do you remember Correct. which one? Uh, it, the second one specifically talks about the genetics, and the first one is more about, it's specifically kind of about Russia. So she talks about uh, the it was kind of during the the time between the end of the USSR and the when the oligarchs were coming into power in Russia, and she talks about a lot of them, Berzovsky, et cetera, specifically. So aside from that, there's no doubt that Michael Chomiak, her grandfather, who she grew up with in Canada, and I believe she, she cited him as an influence, correct? Oh, a major influence in her life. She constantly talked about him in interviews, how he was a major determination of what she began to believe, uh, and especially towards um, her ideal of Ukraine itself. He was obviously a, a major Nazi propagandist and uh, groomed her from the start to continue, really, his work. Now, she, like the FBI and CIA, also used a lie when she was asked about her grandfather, she lied and said it was Russian propaganda. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a major go-to for her on that. And she, the first time she was really asked about that was by a um, organization, a newspaper that she had worked for as an editor. So they kind of set her up to be able to cover for it. And she, she was asked about her grandfather's role as a, Nazi collaborator. They never call him a straight Nazi, but as a collaborator. Uh, and she was able to spin it, saying it was Russian propaganda to try and smear her and her political uh, aspirations. And then they ran with it as well and continued to do that. Even now, much of the Canadian media covers for her. And it's it's very obvious that he was a major, major player in Nazi propaganda. Well, and you know, you brought up whether he's a Nazi or a collaborator. I talked mm -hmm. about that yesterday, too. And I said, I think it's clear that calling him a Nazi collaborator doesn't go far enough. He's, mm -hmm. I think he's just a straight Nazi. And he, another way to show that is he benefited directly. Uh, he was given, uh, first of all, the one of the papers he worked for, it was— uh, the publishing and the printing presses that were used, the offices he used, used to be a Jewish newspaper. And when they removed the Jews, killed the Jews, they gave him this publishing house, this printing press to utilize, as well as giving him two different apartments. The first one he was unhappy with, and the second one he actually wrote a letter to high-up Nazis saying, 
he was very displeased with how dirty it was from the pests that had lived in it before. And at the time, Jews were often referred to just as pests or vermin. So he's he carried the same ideology. He benefited just the same as high up-ranking Nazis. He was only really two people away from being connected with Hitler in the chain of command with this propaganda outlet. And where did this information come from, if not Russia? I understand the proof of this was found by a relative of Christian Freeland's, a professor? Yeah. Uh, his name is escaping me right now. Um, but I think Kempka. Kempka, yeah. And all of this is very easy to find. It's It's not Russian propaganda. It's direct sources that can be found really by anybody if they can use a search engine. So, so for instance, if they search... They could find Michael Chomiak's obituary when he passed mm-hmm. away. Yeah, yeah. And in the obituary, it says he worked for this Polish newspaper. Now, by the way, could another objection to her being in charge of NATO logically come from the country of Poland? Was Michael Chomiak any friend of Poland's? No, he actually worked for the— his boss, uh, his, the, his boss's boss, was actually known as the Butcher of Poland and uh, actually was the one who facilitated all the atrocities that really happened in Poland at the time. It was uh, uh, Volodymyr Kubijovich was his direct uh, boss when it came to the propaganda outlet, and Kubijovich's boss was Hans Michael Frank, and that's the butcher of Poland. He was the Reich minister and the governor of occupied Poland when the major killings were going on there. And when you say the butcher of Poland and so on, that's not just a nickname. The, the, what I've seen is they were really vicious towards oh, yeah. the Polish people. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. Well, really, they actually call it unspeakable atrocities. They, I mean, you think of Jews being put in ovens and stuff like that, but the things they were doing were even beyond that. It was sadistic the way they treated them. They were taking joy out of public hangings, of nailings to to trees, all sorts of just really unspeakable atrocities. Now, of course, you've seen the footage from Ukraine now about mm-hmm. people being taped to poles and flogged and all sorts of crazy things yes and i would say in a sense that taping people to poles publicly is a form of the nailing it's a, a gentler version obviously yeah it's definitely a throwback to their ancestors and i think they're trying to send a message with that mm-hmm. you agree definitely most definitely they they follow in the footsteps of their ancestors to a T. They admire people like Yaroslav Stetsko, Stepan Bandera, who were both the same type of sadistic, crazy, just took joy out of really putting people through misery before they killed them. There was no— Sadist. I mean, you, yeah, you can't say there's a humane way to kill somebody, but they really went out of their way to make it inhumane the way they dealt with people with their death. Now, people who listen to my show, of course, have heard the name Stefan Bandera a lot, mm-hmm. and they see that every January 1st on Bandera's birthday, big portraits are still marched to the streets of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. 
and not just Ukraine, it's in Canada as well, and Freeland herself takes part in those. She's a big proponent of the Bandera Youth, which is a large group in Canada who wear khaki uniforms just like the Nazi, the Hitler Youth, and every year have a parade in honor of Bandera and indoctrinate these children to believe that he was some sort of hero. She, Freeland herself, calling him a Ukrainian patriot who was a guerrilla warfare expert against both the Nazis and the Soviets, which obviously is untrue since he worked for the Nazis. No, but you mentioned the name Sesko, and mm-hmm. I, I know who you're talking about, but explain to our listeners, because Sesko doesn't get as much ink as Bandera does, but Sesko right. was very important. So who is Sesko, and t- tell us about him. So Sesko, he was really— um, Bandera's right-hand man. He was a major player in the OUNB when the OUN split between the Melnik and Bandera factions, the Melnik being more of a civilized, if you can call it that, version, uh, whereas the Bandera faction obviously went with that kind of sadistic, wanting to do use any means necessary in order to gain independence for Ukraine. And he was he provided the ideological foundation for the OUN and the OUNB about how the Ukrainians are a special race, how they deserve to have their own land separate from everybody else. So he was a a very hardline Ukrainian ultra-nationalist. And I was talking to Mark yesterday that when people a lot of times hear the word nationalist in America, I think they think of it in a modern sort of Donald Trump sense, wanting— the country to have, to be sovereign as a nationalism as opposed to globalism. I think a lot of people in America think that. But when they say they're Ukrainian nationalists, that's not what they mean. They're not just people who like their country, right? Right. They're people who believe that they, just as the Nazis did, believe that they are a special race, that they are above everyone else. And that others are subhuman, including Russians, right? right? Especially Russians, yes. And uh, that's what Putin's talking about when he talks about Ukrainian Nazis. Correct. Now, how did Michael Chomiak— so so let's talk about a little more what he did in World War II. So he took Mm -hmm. over this paper in Krakow, Poland, Mm -hmm. and— what was he, he doing there? He actually was uh, an editor, the editor-in-chief of multiple papers, the Krakowski Visti, the Kolmska Zamelia, a number of other papers. And he was working directly under the Nazi Press uh, Association to spread the ideals, to recruit people to the Nazi cause, and especially to turn Ukrainians towards the Nazis, to show them how they would benefit from aligning with the Nazis. Uh, he was a major role in uh, creating the SS Galicia, which was a Nazi division specifically made up of Ukrainian volunteers. They He ran constant ads in the papers about how they need to join with their Nazi brothers. Um, he actually printed when Operation Barbarossa started. He said, At last, the hour has come. Our dreams, our ambitions are now reality. This is our resurrection. The invincible German army is bringing us our cherished freedom. So he was a major, major, if not the most prevalent 
Nazi uh, propagandists for the Ukrainian population, but just overall as well. The the propagandists? Yeah, I would say he is the most prevalent propagandist. And as you pointed out, he he wasn't a water boy or paper boy for the paper. Right. He was editor-in-chief, right? Correct, of multiple papers. Now, also, he took notes about who he hired for writers, and those notes have proven a lot of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, it's easily traceable, making the connections with him, multiple people who go on to become other propagandists to join different groups. His alignment with so many different organizations is undeniable, and that's directly from him himself, not Russian propaganda or anything like that. It's his own words. And a lot of stuff about the, the Krakow paper mm-hmm. uh, was documented, I believe, the L.A. Holocaust Museum. I could be mm-hmm. wrong on the city, but one of the Holocaust museums has documented it extensively, separately, not trying to prove anything about him specifically, but just documenting what happened with this anti-Semitic newspaper, right? Right, and it, it is the L.A., if I remember, the L.A. Holocaust Remembrance Organization. They have many documents I've utilized before as well. Uh, they do a, a tremendous amount of research into what they do and remain pretty much impartial when it comes to their sources. So did he do anything in Poland that caused him to be wanted by the Polish government for war crimes? Uh, he specifically, they went after him for recruiting for the SS Galicia. From what I know, that was his major role, is being uh, involved with Heinrich Himmler directly in the creation of this. Uh, to my knowledge, that's the extent of what he actually participated in himself. That's uh, provable. But my understanding is the country of Poland wanted to put him on trial, and they searched for him for decades, correct? Yeah, that's because his affiliation with um, Hans himself, the man who was in charge of and governor of of occupied Poland. Now, they were searching for him for decades, but lo and behold, he was in Canada, right? Right. Like many other Ukrainian nationalists, they were uh, spirited away to North America, that including the man we were talking about earlier, Stetsko. He was the CIA's uh, top informant when it came to many things, and he was brought to our country. Men like Labed, uh, all sorts of members of the OUN were brought back over to North America to continue their work. Now, do you think there's any way the Canadian government didn't know that Sky was in the country? There's no way possible that they didn't know. I'm sure Poland asked, you know, and made it plain they were looking <clears throat> for the guy, but he was hiding in plain sight, protected by the Canadian government. They were most definitely complicit in his hiding from Poland. Now, where in Canada did he settle? That would be... Um can't remember. Was it Edmonton that he finally settled in? Or was yes, it? I believe it's Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. And why is Edmonton, Alberta a significant place for dealing with these Ukrainian Nazis? Sure. It's If you look at the two major cities in Canada are Toronto and Edmonton that have a huge population, especially of ultra-nationalist Ukrainians. But Edmonton specifically is where the Chomiaks settled. Right, and that's Freeland's family. Right. For, for, and there's pictures of Freeland's mother, who, by the way, you said she left her father. But 
She was a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she became a very well-known lawyer. And going into the law to support the Ukrainian cause seems to be mm-hmm. something that a lot of people did, right? Very much so. Uh, the man that... Uh, Chomiak had worked for was actually Hitler's personal legal advisor. Who's who's that again? That's Hans Michael Frank, and he was the boss of Chomiak's boss. So he was the one, he was the direct Nazi link who gave Kubijovich the direction to have Chomiak and the, the things he was supposed to put out. So Hans Michael Frank was really the uh, connection between the Ukrainian nationalists and the Nazis themselves. And Frank, he he was he acted as the Reich minister, governor of occupied Poland, as I had already said. But he was personally connected to Hitler as his legal advisor. So Chomiak was literally only two people away in the chain of command away from Hitler himself. And again, Christine Freeland grew up with this man. He was a major political influence on her. <clears throat> yeah. Her mother was an important Ukrainian nationalist activist. Because this wasn't just a community of people who know how to cook borscht, right? Right. And they would call it borscht, so you know, so be careful with that. They might come after you. Yeah, I don't want to be taped to a pole for right. p- pronouncing beet soup wrong. But uh, <laughs> these were activist Ukrainian nationalists, right? Mm. Yeah, and Freeland has been associated with a number of these groups. Like I said earlier, she's been associated with the Bandera Youth. She's openly talked about uh, supporting Bandera himself. She was with Plast when she was younger. She went to a Ukrainian Saturday school in which she was indoctrinated from an early age on how Ukraine is a special race, how they were freedom fighters, the, the, the line that the Ukrainians used to trick themselves into believing they weren't part of this horrible atrocities committed by the Nazis. Uh, she went on to going to Ukraine and becoming a part of the Rook Party, which was at first, uh, it was a group of people who did a lot of protests, many of them illegal, many of them violent, but they eventually became a political party and they had the Wolf's Angel as their um, uh, symbol for their party itself, which was a uh, a Nazi symbol that was used at, for SS groups. Uh, they actually, two of the people they had run for president had committed crimes anywhere from rape to libel. So they were obviously not the most savory of characters that she was associated with. And they went on to help found the Social Nationalist Party of Ukraine. Those that don't know, the National Socialist Party obviously is the Nazi organization. So they took their name from the Nazi Party itself. Uh, they went on to have people like Oleg Tianibuk, who, for those who don't know, they may know his picture. He's the gentleman giving a uh, Heil Hitler sign and was good friends with John McCain. You see him shaking hands with McCain. Uh, people like Victoria Newland, Jeffrey Pyatt. He's very well connected with many of the people who were involved with Maidan. So she was involved heavily with this group. She as a journalist, she would, every chance she got, she would promote this group. So there was no way that she didn't know about this, their ideology. They openly were uh, carriers, like you said, of during the parades of Bandera. They were right at the front of the parade line carrying pictures of Bandera and Stetsko. 
So she, she was a major part of this group. And there, again, with her, like with her grandfather, there's no way she didn't know that these were openly Nazi neo-fascist groups. And also you talked about the Galicia division of the SS, mm-hmm. but up in Canada at a cemetery there in Edmonton, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, they have a memorial to the Galicia division. You, That's right. Have you seen that? And yeah, and they visit the Plast group, which she was in as uh, a young girl. Uh, Bandera was also in it when he was in Ukraine. But the Plast group of Canada uh, make a special trip to that monument every year. Yeah, yeah, and that's why you say she was groomed, right? Oh, definitely. She was definitely raised. And and talk about you mentioned the Saturday schools. She's she's talking about going there. In fact, when she was a child, she was featured talking about the Saturday schools. What were the Saturday schools? So Saturday schools in the Ukrainian diaspora were where they taught them the specific talking points, such as how to defend Bandera, how they were um, great liberators or attempted liberators of the of the Ukraine from both the Nazis and from the Soviets. It's really where they target children to get them to believe that Ukrainians are special, that they're different than other people, that other groups, especially the Russians, are lower forms of life. It's really the essential starting point of being able to get these people to actually believe the words they're saying, not just try to not just trying to cover things up, but they actually believe what they're saying. Now, interestingly, during this special military operation, Poland has come down on Ukraine's side, but I don't see how they can avoid the fact that a Nazi war criminal wanted for decades by the Polish government. And again, when people find out if they look into the atrocities against the Poles, I I think Polish people eventually will have a say on this and be offended. Do you, do you, do you think as a possibility Oh, definitely. I mean, Ukraine and Poland have never been, obviously, they were at war with each other at one time. They've never been very close allies ever. And especially after, like you're saying, the atrocities that were committed against them, especially by the Ukrainian groups that were collaborators uh, with the Nazis, Nazis themselves. Again, that word collaborators is used to lighten the uh, actual actions that they took and their alignment with the Nazis. So once people are able to see that, which it's not hard to find, yes, that may be a a bit of a stickler for them to being allies. Yes, I agree. And there's one site that has drawings that were done of some of these these atrocities, and they're horrible. Not the drawings. I'm not an art critic, but it's it's stunning. Babies nailed to trees and so on, Mm. right? Oh, yeah. And this was a very common thing. They would literally tape babies or not tape. They would use wire and wrap it around these small infants, nailing them to poles, watching them die. And just it's I it's very difficult to talk about. When I was writing my book, I was privy to a lot of these pictures that were taken. And it's it's disgusting. Yeah, no, no. And I think that's the material that needs to get out to remind Poland who they're dealing with. Now, who right. are they dealing with, with Christina Freeland? So there's no possible way she did not know who her grandfather was and what what he did. 
There's no way. There's no way she didn't know about this. Her her family was ingrained in this for so long, and he was such a prevalent and well-known person in this, in all these organizations, it would have been impossible for her not to know unless they kept her in some sort of bubble or uh, it would just be completely impossible. She was groomed to follow in his footsteps. So she became him essentially. And I think the thing is she doesn't see anything wrong with it. She thinks, right. uh, uh, do you agree with that? It's not yeah, that after, she, yeah, go after ahead. reading her books and listening to what she says, it's very clear that she believes all of this, that she's completely in line with these neo-fascist Nazi beliefs. Now, when she was asked about it, she was asked about it by a paper, and her office told the Globe and Mail, a big paper in Canada, the biggest paper. Which she worked for as an editor as well. Right. Do you think that her getting into journalism when her grandfather— was an editor and remained a writer his his whole life. He wrote stuff in Canada. Do you think that's an accident, or do you think the idea was that she would get a prominent position in media? Oh, she was definitely given those positions on the coattails of her grandfather. They tried to play it off that she was just a stringer writer in Ukraine, but— the positions she was given at such a young age, the help she gained from Ukrainian groups to be educated, they paid for a lot of her schooling. It's impossible that she would have had any other way to get these positions if she wasn't getting some sort of outside help. And uh, her denying it, she flat out lied, uh, 100 mm-hmm. percent. She said mm-hmm. it's not true. What do you make of that? I don't know if she actually believes it or not. That's the tough part with these ultra-nationalists is they have been so ingrained in this for so long that a lot of times they've said it so much that they actually believe it, despite the numerous ways of being shown via actual hard evidence from their own families, from actual organizations. They somehow still believe the lies that they're saying. Right. And there was never any— couple newspapers in Canada wrote the truth, and they found it, it wasn't that hard for them to find, because as we say, all this stuff is documented mm-hmm. very clearly in the people's mm-hmm. own words. Mm-hmm. But the Global Mail does not seem ever to f- follow it up with her. No, they actually try and help to cover it up by uh, saying that it is Russian propaganda, uh, the normal go-to for media outlets, and try and help assist her in covering up for her grandfather. So the Globe and Mail is sticking by that story? Yeah, definitely. And a lot of Canadian media outlets do the same. And I think that what we know about her background, she's the, the, the second most powerful woman in the Canadian government currently, correct? Oh, yes. So I think that disqualifies her from serving in the government there. I don't think she should be in any position politically. Do you agree? I would I would have to agree, especially with the way Canada is trying to come to terms with some of their past atrocities committed against Native people in Canada. You would think it would be a little bit far more reaching than just that, that anybody who's aligned with these types of atrocities that were committed would at least be looked at a little bit closer. But somehow she and a lot of the Ukrainians are able to still remain under the radar. But, uh, you know, O.J. said 
Russian disinformation because it seems like those are the magic words that make no one right. follow up on anything. Do you agree? Right. Yeah. If you're a Putin puppet, Russian propaganda, it's instantly you're believed and everything that was said is wrong, no matter what kind of evidence is given. And this, this is as solid evidence as I've ever seen for something like this. Yeah, it's it's undeniable. And not all Ukrainians are Nazis. Himka, her her cousin, I believe, mm-hmm. who exposed a lot of this stuff, he's an mm-hmm. academic who believes he's embarrassed as a Ukrainian that too many Ukrainians justify the Nazi background, right? Yeah, John Paul Himka has done a great amount of really good work in trying to get Ukrainians to come to terms with what has gone on and move on from it instead of continuing the lies and continuing the terrible things that come along with that ultranationalism. Now, has she ever responded after some of the newspapers? Because as you point out, most of them don't cover it, but a couple of them covered it very well. And you'd think someone would follow up with her. Have you ever seen that happen? I've never seen her have to answer for anything except from places she's either worked for or places that defend her. Now, also, she's very close to Klaus Schwab and the WEF, and we talk about that. And I've said the Russian military action is essentially a proxy war against the globalist New World Order and mm-hmm. the WEF. As much as any country, people say it's a proxy war against the U.S., And that's true. But I think it's also a proxy war against that organization. What do you know about Christina Freeland and Klaus Schwab? Now, a lot of the banking stuff uh, is talked about in her second book. She talks about a lot of the uh, city group, especially that she's aligned with or had been aligned with, I believe, which also worked with IG Farben, the Nazis banking system. So I'm not largely educated on her role with the banking system, but I do have to agree with you that this is more than just uh, a proxy war between America and Russia. Uh, This has grown since the Cold War into something much, much bigger, Uh, and it's the entire West that Russia is kind of taking on. The cultural Cold War is continuing between this ultra-liberal and very strange way our country is headed against a more realistic way of uh, how the world should be going, having actual morals and beliefs and things, as uh, a great deal of Russians have. And there's such a volume of info. I think actually what's needed is someone to compile, I dare say, a dossier to put all this material, you know, a big pile of it, because there's so much paper and if if they put that together, maybe as a big PDF file or something like that, they could be easily distributed. There's such overwhelming evidence on mm-hmm. this one that I think it would be very bad for her. What do you think? I'm not suggesting yeah, I, you do it because I myself am too lazy to, to <laughs> do it, although I may do it. Yeah, I've actually been working on a second volume of Ukraine Forever Upon, and that is going to be a major part of it, obviously, especially coming up to the special military operation. Um, But yes, it it would not be difficult to, I mean, get hundreds of pages of hard evidence that 
would show what she has done, what she continues to do, her ideology and everything. Okay, Jared Copus, we're going to let you go. Fantastic interview, great conversation. And remind people where they can find your books at Rodion Press and spell that for people, please. Yep. It's R-O-D-I-O-N press.com. And thanks so much, Jareth. It's been a great week. Fantastic guests all week. Everyone have a nice weekend. This is Lee Stranahan, and you've been listening to The Backstory.